we know that stroke is a really morbid disease, right? Almost 800,000 people a year get diagnosed with a stroke, right? There's a stroke that happens every 40 seconds or so in the United States, and every four minutes someone dies from stroke. So there's a huge amount of morbidity and mortality associated with stroke. So early identification and early treatment we know is going to be the best intervention possible for these patients. That includes both TPA as well as endovascular therapy. Matt, from the introduction, it sounds like we are going to be talking about strokes today. But uh, why? I mean, don't don't we just call a stroke alert and then get our note done as soon as possible? Not exactly, Ross, but that was how I thought about strokes when I was out there. This day and age, there is an incredible amount of nuance to strokes, aka cerebrovascular accidents or CVAs. One of those nuances involves some fancy words. Those fancy words are endovascular stroke therapy and large vessel occlusions. And you do endovascular stroke therapy for large vessel occlusions. Yeah, it sounds like you just made that up right now. No, no, it's a real thing. And I had an amazing time hanging out and learning a ton from. My name is Danny Ulner. I'm an emergency medicine and EMS physician at the University of Colorado Hospital. He's actually the EMS medical director at the University of Colorado. He's the assistant medical director for Aurora Fire and Rescue, the medical director for the University of Colorado Mobile Stroke Unit, and the medical director for the Lifeline Critical Care Transport Service. Today, we're going to be talking about EST, which stands for Endovascular Stroke Therapy. This is the hottest therapy since PCI, um, 12 studies since 2013, and then five studies in 2015 alone. So what the hell is endovascular stroke therapy, Dr. Wilner? Great question. So for a subset of patients with stroke, we know that they have a large enough area that's injured where we actually want to go in and try to get that blockage out, just like they do with PCI, where they actually snake a catheter in typically through the femoral artery. They go all the way back up the retrograde through the aorta up the aortic arch, and then into either the internal carotid artery or even farther up into one of the smaller vessels beyond that to actually identify where the stroke is located and then pull it back out. All right, let's pause and talk about some terminology. Danny mentions PCI, which stands for percutaneous coronary intervention, aka the cath. Endovascular stroke therapy is essentially PCI for the brain. Endovascular basically just means they go through a vessel to fix a problem. Endo equals within and vascular equals vessel. So endovascular within the vessel. Now endovascular stroke therapy is used for only specific types of strokes that are caused by large vessel occlusions. Danny will talk about what an LVO is later, but large vessel occlusions refers to a clot in one of the large vessels that supplies a relatively huge territory to the brain. These arteries are the distal internal carotid proximal anterior cerebral artery, and the proximal middle cerebral artery. So how does that endovascular stroke therapy and snaking up there and pulling the clot out compare to TPA, especially when it comes to outcomes and people doing better or worse when they have this EST done? Yeah, so we know that for a long time, the mainstay of treatment and really the only option for treatment for patients with stroke was TPA, right? Systemically giving them a lytic throughout their entire body, right? So we're taking a giant hammer for a really small problem. <laughs> and the option 
while it's there, isn't great because we know that it's not an extremely effective therapy for many patients, and there are a lot of risks. And there are some people who can't even get the therapy because they're already anticoagulated or have other contraindications. The difference with EST is that for the right patient, it has a tremendous opportunity for benefit. And we've seen, based on the studies, that a lot of people do really well. We know that about two and a half patients need to be treated to see an improvement in overall stroke outcomes. Wow, that's that's big. Yeah. I mean, it has a huge benefit when you choose for the right patient population. Speaking of a, a big hammer for a small problem, what does this mean for us on the ambulance? Well, the biggest thing to know for, for you guys on the ambulance is that nothing's necessarily changing dramatically at the moment, right? It's not changing the care that you're providing. It may end up changing where we end up taking a patient, but day to day, hour to hour, when we're working with stroke patients, it's still the same basic set of assessment skills and then basic initial triage skills about where you're going to take the patient. If a hospital can give TPA, does that mean they can do this EST and pull the clot out? It's a really good question. And the reality is that not every stroke center is created equal, right? We know that there are several different levels of stroke centers, right? Everything from a primary stroke center, which is a place that can give TPA and keep some patients who have had strokes, right? That's sort of your basic community hospital now is really equipped to handle most stroke cases initially. They can do the neurologic assessment. There's oftentimes either a neurologist in-house or a teleneurologist that's on call that can interview the patient. And then based on that and the initial CT scan, a decision can be made about whether TPA is indicated. Right? That's sort of the baseline level of, of what most places in the U.S. have at this point. There are some places that are more rural that don't even have that level of care, uh, but a primary stroke center is really sort of the baseline, sort of like what a PCI center might be these days. Gotcha. Beyond that, though, there are now some higher levels of care that actually provide more specialty care, and that's where we start seeing thrombectomies being done or, or endovascular stroke therapy, right? There's sort of two different levels above a primary stroke center. There's a thrombectomy-capable hospital where they have access to a thrombectomy lab, where there's a specialist that can do that type of intervention, and then even above that is a comprehensive stroke center, and that's the highest level based on American Stroke Association guidelines. And what a, what a comprehensive stroke center gets you is a level of care that provides thrombectomy, but also provides neurocritical care services and rehab services that are sort of the pinnacle of what's being done at this point, right? It gives you access to things like management of aneurysmal bleeds or AVMs or other sort of more complex, higher level endovascular procedures that aren't done frequently. So I'm a simple-minded guy, and what you're telling me sounds like we should just start transporting anyone with a neurological complaint to one of these higher-level centers that can do all of these fantastic therapies, including EST. Does that sound like the right approach? Well, while it sounds really good, right, that totally complicates the system for so many reasons. Let's talk just about sort of volumes, right? If we start sending everyone to one of these comprehensive stroke centers, that means that they're going to be overrun. And most of the patients who have strokes aren't eligible for an endovascular approach. So we're bringing people to a place they don't need to go. It's going to stretch resources at that center. It's going to mean the primary stroke centers aren't receiving the patients that they need to maintain proficiency. And it's going to be pulling resources out of that local EMS jurisdiction a lot of times because it's rare that a region has multiple comprehensive stroke centers. And it sounds like they're not eligible for that endovascular stroke therapy because they don't have... Uh that specific type of stroke that we call a large vessel occlusion. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? That's exactly right. The reality is that a very small percentage of all the patients we bring in with stroke-like symptoms actually have an LVO that's eligible for retrieval through thrombectomy. The vast majority of patients either have a stroke mimic, have a real stroke, but 
aren't eligible for a number of reasons uh, or have something else going on, including intracranial hemorrhage, which we don't necessarily want to transport patients long distances if they have an intracranial hemorrhage. We'd potentially rather identify that sooner by taking them to a closer appropriate facility, particularly if they're anticoagulated or have other risk factors that need to be managed before they get pushed onto a, a different hospital. So is there is there any way at all to determine in the field, okay, this person should just go to the closest hospital versus, okay, we should skip some hospitals and go to a place that can do the endovascular stroke therapy or EST for a large vessel occlusion or LVO. Yeah. And that's really the crux of the issue, right? How do we identify the right patient to get them to the right place? Right. Um, and so it sort of breaks down into the first steps are really traditionally what we've always done, right? We want to make sure that there's not another cause of their altered mental status or neurologic deficit. So doing a good initial assessment, doing a good initial exam, getting a blood glucose on all those patients to make sure that they're not hypoglycemic as an explanation, right? The next step is then really to do what we've always done. It's to do our pre-hospital stroke scale, typically either Cincinnati or LA pre-hospital stroke scale, right? And if those patients screen positive on that scale and we have an LVO mechanism in place, meaning that we've built a system of care that revolves around identifying patients with LVOs and trying to get them to the right place, we're typically then going to implement one of our LVO screening tools, of which there are a multitude, uh, and all have fairly similar testing characteristics. So what that means is that one's not necessarily better than another. It's really what your region is choosing to go with. The next step then is to perform that LVO screening tool. And depending on the specific tool, there are different what we call cutoffs where it's going to be positive. Uh, but the big thing to know for the you know, street provider is it's either positive or it's negative. So if an LVO screen is positive, in that situation, we might actually choose to take the patient to a comprehensive stroke center or a thrombectomy-capable stroke center where they can perform a thrombectomy. And do you have a score that you favor yourself or one that we can tell our listeners about today? Yeah, I think that there are a couple out there that are really good, right? To, to sort of throw them out there and name them, the most commonly known ones, there's FASTD, there's LAMS, there's RACE, and then there's VAN, right? And so those are four of the most commonly utilized ones uh, in stroke screening at this time. The VAN screening tool, which stands for vision, aphasia, and neglect, is one of the easiest ones to use because it's simply a positive or negative screen. And it's really based on the Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke scale, which we already do anyway every day. Yeah, so it sounds like the the van score is a little bit easier to implement because of familiarity. Um, I'm confessing a little bit about my age, but we didn't have any knowledge of LVOs when I was a paramedic on the street, so I have no idea how to do the van exam. Can you uh, help the listeners out there who have been doing this as long as I have and have no idea what the van score is or how to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's really easy. Right. So the first part is sort of what we've always done. You have the patient raise their arms in front of them for 10 seconds, just like they're doing a Cincinnati. And we look to see if there's drift. After that, we're going to go on and decide to do visual field checks. Right. So to do that, you're going to cover one eye and basically flash your fingers in different quadrants, upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right, and see if the patient has a visual field cut. When you're doing the visual field checks, if you're finding that the patient really can't cooperate with your testing, the other thing you can do is to check blink to threat. So instead of putting a finger up and seeing if they can identify how many fingers you're holding. You just yell at them. You yell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you flash your fingers in their eyes in that region and see if they, if they blink their eyes, uh, basically letting you know whether that visual field is present or whether there's a, a loss of visual field in that area. So basically, I, I get close to them, I take my hand, and I, if I'm trying to do the upper, outer, right, I just kind of quickly 
almost like try to make them flinch and see if they blink. And that's close enough to a uh, checking their visual quadrants. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, exactly. That's a great description of it. That's the V. And so what is A? The A stands for aphasia. So there's two types of aphasia. There's expressive aphasia where the person can't actually get the words out that they want to say. They know what they want to say, but it's coming out garbled. And there's receptive aphasia, which is where if I speak to the person, they're not understanding what I'm saying. And so we want to assess for both of those. And so what we'll do is we'll sort of talk to the patient and then listen to their responses and see if their responses are logical or if they're garbled speech or if they're inappropriate or incorrect words. For those of you out there who haven't seen aphasia yet, just YouTube expressive and receptive aphasia, um, you'll never forget it. Okay, so that's visual fields for V, aphasia for A, and then van spells V-A-N. So N is neglect, right? What does that entail? That's it. That's the last part. So neglect is really the fact that they're not aware of half of their body, right? And so we do a couple sort of tests to, to check for neglect. The easy one is if you have them close their eyes and you touch both sides of their arms or their legs and see if they know that you're touching both sides. Oftentimes patients with neglect will be aware that you're touching the good side, but the side there's a deficit, they're not going to be aware that you're touching it. Uh, the other thing you can do is try to see if they can move their eyes past midline because Oftentimes, if there's neglect, these patients may actually have what we call forced gaze deviation, where their eyes are pointing off to the side where the lesion is, and they may not actually be able to cross the midline with their eyes. So that's another good indicator for neglect. So with that one, the neglect, I, if I'm understanding this correctly, I'll just touch both their right arm, their left arm, and I'll say to the patient, hey, am I touching your right arm, left arm, or both? And then I'll essentially see if they're correct or not. Yep. And if they can't feel one of their arms, then that's a positive test. Exactly. Awesome. So just to summarize, we start with the pronator drift. If that's positive, we move on to the visual fields, aphasia, and neglect. And if any of those are abnormal, if any of the V, A, or N components are abnormal, then we screened positive for LVO. That's it. And that's sort of your indicator where if you have a thrombectomy center that's available to you, you might choose to go to that center. Yeah, there's not strong enough evidence to suggest such a protocol yet. For now, I would say just keep transporting to your nearest local stroke center per your protocol. So what's the pathophysiology behind why this van assessment or the fast ED or the race, why, like why do those predict a large vessel occlusion? How, how does that translate to the brain? Let's start just briefly talking about the anatomy. So the, the brain itself is fed by four blood vessels, two in the front part of the neck, two in the posterior aspect. The front part are the carotids. In the back, it's the vertebral arteries, right? And as these course up into the brain, they eventually get up into the intracranial portion, meaning the part inside of the head. There they branch into what's called the anterior cerebral arteries, the middle cerebral arteries, and the posterior cerebral arteries. And then there are also some smaller areas that affect balance and stuff in the posterior circulation, which LVOs really don't touch on the posterior circulation very much at all. It's really isolated to anterior circulation strokes. So things affecting the anterior cerebral artery or ACA and the middle cerebral artery or MCA uh, or the internal carotid artery, which feeds both of those. Uh, so what we're looking for with an LVO is a blockage either in the intracranial portion of the internal carotid artery, the first portion of the MCA, which is the M1 or the M2 segment, and then the first or second portion of the anterior cerebral artery, the A1 or the A2 segment. Those are really the parts of the brain where if there's a blockage, patients are going to have profound deficits that affect things like their visual field uh, or uh, aphasia, so their ability to speak, or neglect. 
uh, their ability to sense a part of their body. So it's large vessel cutoffs, large areas that don't have blood flow that are really affected by an LVO rather than smaller areas that are from what we call perforators or small blood vessels that feed very specific portions of the brain. What we're looking for is large areas of the brain that are affected uh, and that have very prominent clinical characteristics. Right. So we're not subjecting someone to a catheter in their leg and medications in a hospital admission if half their tongue is numb. Like we're going for the the big life-changing stuff. That's exactly right. Right. And the NIH stroke scale, which we use in the hospital, uh, has some pretty clear cutoffs for when we think it's an LVL, right? So typically six or above on the NIH stroke scale is going to be something that may trigger us into a large vessel occlusion. It's not the person that comes in with an NIH of one or two typically. Large vessel occlusions cause large problems. The clot is in a big artery that supplies a lot of your brain. So big deficits like not feeling your arm, not being able to speak correctly or understand speech and not being able to see are what we're talking about here. Okay, so say I'm on the street and I do the van assessment and they screen positive or they screen negative. Uh, how good is, like how reliable is that? How good is this test at, at actually predicting an LVO or predicting that it's not an LVO? It's a really good question. The initial studies were extremely positive and showed that it caught almost everyone with an LVO. There are some new studies that are going to be coming out that probably show that most of the tests that we do, whether it's LAMS, RACE, FASTED, or VAN, all have pretty similar testing characteristics. So they're moderately good at identifying patients with an LVO, meaning there may be a patient that has an LVO that it misses. Likewise, we're going to overcall it sometimes, and we know that there are patients who may screen positive on these tests and not have an LVO. And that gets into the, the discussion of over-triage and under-triage when we're looking at patients with stroke. And that's a really important thing to consider because EMS is a limited resource and we don't necessarily want to take a unit out of service and send it across town or out of the county if the patient's not going to get benefit because it means that someone else in the local service area may not get the you know response that they need when they're sick. Yeah, I think one analogy we can all relate to is trauma activation criteria. There are times when we have to call an activation and we all kind of roll our eyes doing it because we know the person's fine. And then there are times when the person doesn't meet any criteria and thank God that there's that paramedic judgment one down there at the bottom. So I think the LVO criteria and the van and all these other assessments uh, have a similar um, ability to both overcall and undercall. Uh, and the most important thing is that if you're worried and you think someone might have an LVO, either get on the phone or let the receiving doc know somehow. Yeah, you're absolutely right, right? Because the better prepared we are once they arrive, the faster we can get them to the CT scanner, the faster we can get a team mobilized if they do need endovascular therapy, which is going to reduce the door-to-groin puncture time, which is one of the big metrics that they're looking at. So you mentioned the door-to-groin puncture time, which will always make me laugh, but why is that important <laughs> and what are, what are hospitals trying to measure here and what are they looking at? Right. So we know that stroke is a disease of time, just like a heart attack where the more time you wait, the more muscle dies, the more time you wait, the more neurons die. So the faster we can get you in the door, get you scanned and get the TPA hung or get you to the endovascular suite for thrombectomy, the more neurons we're going to save probably. So some of the metrics that we look at are door to CT time, door to TPA hanging, and then as we talked about door to groin puncture or door to needle time for endovascular therapy. The other big one that we don't talk about, but that's really important 
is door in door out time. And this one actually applies to EMS because it means how long does it take you to arrive at the primary for them to identify a stroke and then to get you back on another truck and get you turned around and out to that comprehensive center. And that's where a lot of the discussion about how long is too long to bypass to go directly to a comprehensive stroke center comes from. We know that the numbers for the time it takes to get you transferred are actually not very good. It's anywhere from 50 to 90 minutes. So that's a long time, particularly if it only takes you five extra minutes to go down the road to a comprehensive stroke center. You may actually benefit by going directly to a comprehensive stroke center. Can you give us an idea of how these stroke systems are set up with regard to the primary receiving center versus a regular community hospital versus one of these top-notch, every single therapy and specialists in the world type stroke centers, how they're all set up? Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, sort of break it down into two different options, right? There's a drip and ship model. And what that means is you're going to show up to the primary stroke center. You're going to get your non-contrast head CT. And if you have an LVO, they're going to start TPA for you, call for a transfer truck and send you out to the comprehensive stroke center where they can do a thrombectomy. That's sort of the basic model that exists in most places right now. Uh, if you're not bypassing a, a center based on an LVO screening tool, if you don't have an LVO screening tool, you're going to your primary stroke center. And then for patients who need transfer, they're going to get shipped out. The other option is a direct to quote unquote mothership model, where you probably do have a stroke system of care that's in place that allows for an LVO screening tool and specific criteria for when you're going to bypass your primary and go directly to the comprehensive stroke center. Uh, what we know is that we don't know. We don't know which is better right now. And there are studies that are actively going on to decide whether we should be bypassing and going directly to a comprehensive or whether we're better off going to a primary, getting TPA started, and then transferring out. That's exciting. I'm super interested to see which model ends up being the most favorable or the winner, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's going to be potentially ground changing if we really do change systems of care, but we're not at the point where we can say across the board that one system is, is superior to the others. Okay, so why should I care if they're getting TPA or if they're going and getting one of these fancy endovascular stroke therapy, suck out the clot things? Well, we want patients to have the best outcome possible. And we know that for patients who are eligible for endovascular therapy, it takes about two and a half patients to be treated for one patient to have an improvement in their outcomes. And when we say improvement in their outcomes, that means an improvement in what we call the modified Rankin scale, uh, which is a functional scale going from zero, meaning you have no deficits, to six, meaning you're dead, right? And most people identify a score of zero or one as being pretty functional on a modified Rankin scale. And so we know that for patients who are endovascular candidates and actually get endovascular therapy, we see a significant improvement in those patients with modified Rankin scales of zero or one. So back in my day, all we had was TPA and it was within three hours of last no normal, no other options. Today, it gets pretty confusing because there are all kinds of timeframes. Can you s summarize the current thinking in terms of timeframes with TPA and EST and whatever else they're doing these days? The landscape's getting more and more challenging out there every month because new studies keep coming out. The baseline thing that you need to remember is that the TPA window is four and a half hours for patients. The original studies for endovascular therapy that were done in 2015 showed that there was a window up to six hours for therapy. And now we've actually moved out to about 24 hours. So six hours to go suck out the clot. That's for the most constrictive protocols, absolutely. But a lot of places are going out to 24 hours now, and what they've started to do is utilize specific types of scans, either CT scans or MRIs, looking at perfusion of the brain. And what they're looking to see is whether there's 
an area that's still salvageable around the infarcted core. So typically what we describe as an infarcted core that's dead that we can't fix, but a penumbra of salvageable brain tissue, an area around it that may still be getting some blood supply that they think if they reperfuse by doing this endovascular therapy, we can actually save them and save those t- those neurons. So the bottom line is every place is going to be slightly different in terms of what their criteria are. Six hours was the hard and fast original criteria for endovascular therapy, but that's really been stretched now to almost 24 hours for the appropriate patients. It's not every patient that comes through the door. It's not every LVO that comes through the door, but with the right tests to identify the right patient, we can actually save them up to 24 hours. Do you have any other cool tips, tricks, or cheat sheets that we could point our EMTs and medics in the direction of? Yeah, there are a couple of really good tips and tricks that are out there. The first is a AHA, ASA triage algorithm for LVO. What this does is it gives you some guidelines for when it's reasonable to transport to a comprehensive stroke center. And it's actually really useful for EMS systems of care as well. So if you want to pass it on to your leadership, they might actually have a good time taking a look at it. What it does is it asks some very specific screening questions to determine if an LVO is suspected. And then it gives you some guidelines for when it's actually reasonable to transport directly to a comprehensive stroke center. So for instance, if they screen positive on an LVO test, the next question you're gonna ask is, has it been less than six hours? And we know that some people will actually go up to 24 hours, but that six hours was the original study timeframe, and it's what the American Stroke Association is using right now as their guideline. So if it's been less than six hours, you're gonna move on to the next question. The next question is, does a transport to a comprehensive or thrombectomy-capable center increase your transport time by more than 15 minutes? And that's the cutoff they use right now, 15 minutes. So if it's less than 15 minutes of additional transport, you should go directly to a comprehensive. But if it's going to be longer than that, right now the recommendation is that you go to a primary, they get stabilized, they get TPA started, and then they do a drip and chip model. Cool. Are there any downloadable apps or anything else that you would recommend or anything cool you've heard of lately? Yeah, so there is one app that's available both on uh, Apple and Android phones. It's free. It's called Join Triage. And what's neat about it is that it lets you choose which of the LVO screening tools you use. So it has access to all the major ones that are in development and, and accessible right now. It walks you through each of the questions. And then at the end of it, it tells you whether the screening tool is positive or negative. And if it's positive, what's really cool about it is it actually shows you all of the hospitals in the region and what their capabilities are. So you can choose the most appropriate facility to transport that patient to. I was going to make a joke about how door to groin puncture is <laughs> very popular in many locker rooms. That's definitely going. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need any other titles. <laughs> <laughs>